Welcome to the pilot episode of Kicking Off with me, John Mills. In today's episode, I talk to Dr. Aaron Caldwell of the US Army. Aaron is interested in exercise physiology, open science, meta-science, and applied statistics, all of which we get into today. So, Dr. Aaron Caldwell, thanks for coming on the podcast. Doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, enjoying uh, quarantine here with uh, my wife and our uh, roommate's dog. Yeah, very nice. Getting through it. I saw the uh, I saw the dog on on Twitter. What kind of what breed is it? Uh, it is. Uh, we think uh, uh, like a yellow lab, but she got <laughs> it, and it was her roommate in Texas picked it up right. from like a Walmart parking lot. So. Um, we think it's a yellow lab, but they're, it's like a little bit bigger than most yellow labs I've seen. Yeah, you so, said about 100 pounds, didn't you? Oh, yeah, he's, he's huge, but likes to still lay on your lap. So Nice. All right, so let's, let's jump in. So uh, just uh, before we start, I'm conscious that not everybody might be um, familiar um, with you, as, as certainly as familiar as I am from the last couple of years of working together on different projects. Um, so I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, uh, I'll just give the kind of quick rundown. Um, I'm an exercise physiologist by trade and kind of a developing statistician by choice now. Um, So my background is uh, formally in exercise science. I just received my PhD in the past year from the University of Arkansas um, in that area, um, but with a graduate certificate in research methods and statistics. And now I'm working on a, a second master's in statistics, which my current job is supporting. Um, my current role is as a postdoctoral fellow um, uh, through the Oak Ridge Institute of Science and Education, which has me stationed um, with the United States Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine. Um, okay. So uh, my research is essentially on uh, optimizing human performance in extreme environments. So uh, heat, cold, and altitude. Um, so that's kind of the general um, area of what my job entails. And then my personal interests also lie with the application of statistics in uh, exercise and sports science, as well as just general um, methodology improvement um, within uh, the field of kinesiology as a whole. Okay, so that that tells us a bit about you as the researcher and your research interests. What What about you as a person? Where, where are you from? Oh, like, good. oh yeah, I, I'm so used to the elevator pitch, you know, um, at conferences. Yeah, so um, it was a good that. elevator pitch. To be fair, it's much better than mine. <laughs> it was very polished. <laughs> I've had to give it so many times in the past, like year with you know the job applications and stuff. Um, but yeah, for me personally, um, I guess if you go back, I, I'm a runner. That's kind of what got me interested in sport and exercise science. Uh, ran in college. Um, originally kind of was more biology pre-med, 
realized I didn't want to actually be mm-hmm. doing any like clinical work. So pivoted over to the science side um, pretty quickly there. Um, yeah. And I've kind of lived all over the place in my life. I think this is the eighth state I've lived in all kind of uh, furthest west I've gone is Kansas, um, or I guess Texas, actually, where I lived in Texas, a little further west. Um, but yeah, um, I guess that's a little bit about me personally. I'm kind of, I'm kind of a vanilla, kind of boring person, um, as far as like the personal details go. Yeah. What about, what about things like sports, sports teams? Do you follow any sports or any teams in particular? Yeah. You know, I think like every exercise in sports science is like, uh, you know, it was an interest in sports that kind of led me down that path in science. Um, I grew up a Nebraska Cornhusker fan. I lived in Nebraska, um, starting when I was five. Um, and that's the team I've kind of followed my entire life, like religiously, as far as football goes, um, okay. can't give them up despite how terrible they are now. Um, and, uh, I also, uh, grew to love soccer, um, when I lived in Kansas and I'm also a diehard sporting Kansas city fan. Um, so okay. those are like my two teams, uh, depend the love and interest, depending on whether it's spring or fall. Nice. Okay. And how, so you said Nebraska corn hubs? Corn huskers. Corn so, huskers. I was thinking yes. yeah, for, for, for people like me on the other side of the pond, uh, like what, what, what division are they in? Like, as I take it, you're talking about American football. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so they're uh, NCAA. So college football, um, okay. division one, bowl division. Um, you know, I've got my little, uh, you can't see it on, on a podcast, but I've got even the banner behind the, behind me right now. They have, um, five national championships to their name. Last one was in 1997. So they actually okay. won, um, I think their third, my first year I lived in Nebraska. Um, okay. so like I grew up in the Eric Crouch, Scott Frost era. Um, and then since then they have been nothing but just God awful, um, with having like their worst, like three seasons in histories in the past three years. So, so, so they hooked you in with a bit of success and then it's just been downhill ever since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's a it's an amazing like program, and everybody was just so nice when I lived there that I you, you can't help but love the Cornhuskers despite how just just terrible terrible they are right now. <laughs> um, which if for, so for the European viewers or listeners, I guess so the Cornhuskers it literally like the team name is based on like the major product of the state, which is corn. Which back in the day, there were people who literally job was to husk the corn. Um, which interesting fact. It used to be the Nebraska Cornhuskers and I, the Iowa Hawkeyes used to be the Iowa Cornhuskers. And like, I think 1901, they played each other and Nebraska won. And the Omaha World Herald, uh, which is Omaha's right on the border of Nebraska and Iowa, Iowa mm-hmm. declared our Cornhuskers win. And from then, Nebraska was the Cornhuskers and Iowa adopted a new name um, or kind of their, what at the time was their secondary name, which is the Hawkeyes. All right. So, so yeah. it was the... Uh... The Husker off of nine. When, when did you say nineteen? It was like either like late eighteen nineties, early nineteen hundreds. I'm just I'm full. I'm chock full of just <laughs> obscure sports facts like that. So you went from following a successful sports American sports team, uh, well, reasonably successful for a period um, in the, in the Nebraska Corn Huskers, and then your other team was or is the uh, sport in Kansas City. Or the Kansas City Wizards, as some people might know them yes, in the MLS. Major, major League Soccer. That's it. Um, so, so formerly a glutton for punishment, clearly, because uh, you're obviously not picking a successful team. 
Oh, hey, I mean, they're one of the more successful clubs. Uh, you know, two MLS Cups to their name, three U.S. Open Cups. Um, so for British viewers, like, that's the equivalent of, like, two FA or, yeah, three FA Cup championships and MLS Cup would be roughly equivalent to, you know, winning the Premier League. I mean, not the same thing, but close. Oh, and one Supporter Shield. So MLS Cup is if you win the playoff competition. Supporter Shield is if you win the regular season. So you have the most points at the end of uh the regular season on the table um we've only won that once which was in 2000 oh. um, yeah and that year we actually went we got the double which was mls cup and supporter shield but that was before i was a fan and that was when they were the kansas city wizards at the time yeah strong name yeah <laughs> which originally actually their, their original name in 1996 was the kansas city whiz oh even better so yeah. You, yeah, you know what whiz, you know what a whiz is in uh, like Britain, right? I would assume urine or something related to urination. But... <laughs> you would assume correct, my friend. Okay, yeah, yeah. Which the funny thing was, is one of our big rivals is Chicago, which and it was still the Chicago Fire. Yeah. So uh, all the urinals <laughs> and parts of the Sporting Kansas City Stadium, um, it'll say "whiz on the fire." Um, nice. A, a kind of a chant or cheer that. Uh, comes about um when we play right. chicago uh, well yeah it kind of makes more sense yeah for the stadium and uh yeah. how, i know the season's obviously stopped because of what's going on uh with covid19 and mm. uh and, and all of that uh, but how 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 do they start the season great uh three and zero start if i remember correctly it feels like forever now um mm. they look rock solid uh really good new midfielder and kind of um, and Alan Toledo, who's a you know rock star uh, striker from Mexico, uh, we have a really good manager. You know, it's a small budget team in comparison mm-hmm. to like the LAFCs, Inter Miamis, New York City FC, which is owned by you know Citigroup, um, the same uh, group or Eddie had, which owns um, Manchester City oh, as well. So like, yeah, they yeah. they do a lot with every dollar they get. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a really good manager. The past two years have been disappointing, but I, I, I honestly think without this, you know, break in the season, they could have probably run the table this year with how well they are playing those first few games. So, mm, not, I don't know. We'll see what happens when they get back or if they get back playing this year. Uh, all right. So, uh, let's, let's talk more a bit about, well, let's talk more about your PhD now. Um, mm. So, where did you do your PhD? Uh, the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. So that's up in the uh, Boston Mountain Range in uh, Northwest Arkansas, which by the way, I say Boston Mountain Range, but it, it like barely probably meets whatever the geological criteria for mountain ranges. Um, I think most people just call it hill country. Um, so beautiful, yeah, nice. uh, beautiful place um, in the United States to live, extremely cheap uh, to live as a graduate student as well, which was very nice. Um, and they do some pretty good research up there too. Uh, always, always good. And uh, so, so you said you specialized in uh, like extreme environments and the physiology behind extreme environments. Like, so in your PhD, did you look at multiple different environments, or were you specializing in one specific area or one specific topic? Uh, yeah. So I kind of I've had a kind of an eclectic background in research. So I've kind of dabbled in a little bit of everything. Um, a lot of my research at Arkansas was focused more on heat hydration. Um, with also an emphasis in cardiovascular physiology. So my dissertation actually ended up being on, um, you know, uh, sitting versus standing and some of the cardiovascular implications of that uh, with the not exact extreme environment, but one aspect of it being local heating 
um, which is a way to increase blood flow uh, uh, to one specific limb. And that's kind of been looked at as kind of a, um, a therapeutic um, aid um, for maintaining vascular function, especially like in individuals with spinal cord injury, um, because they're not able to move those limbs. It's still a way to increase blood flow locally. Um, so that's what my dissertation itself was on, but I've, I've, I've kind of dabbled in a couple different areas. Um, and that's eventually what, you know, it brought the interest in the Army's Environmental Medicine Institute in hiring me. Um, so I think I'm getting a little more focused now, which is I'm kind of the, the heat and hydration person for my division. Um, so that's where I'm nice. kind of honing in more, but I'm still doing, I'm still on altitude protocols. I'm still uh, associated with. Um, but I'm not involved heavily with our cold um, uh, physiology work. And so how did you end up uh, working in that area originally then? So, cause it's, I, I can see how it's all linked together, but it's, it still almost sounds, well, there's, there's quite a, a broad range there in terms of the, like the application of who you're working with and, uh, mm-hmm. and the types of organizations you perhaps yeah. are going to be involved with, with both sides of that research. So what, what led you down so, that path originally then? Well, I think it goes all the way back. Um, uh, you know, during my master's, I kind of did a bunch of different things. Um, that's a whole different story for a whole other time. So my research there doesn't necessarily apply to what I ended up doing in my PhD and onward. Um, but I've always interested in like the heat and hydration aspect as a runner. You know, that's an essential part of your training, especially when um, you live in Kansas where you have, you know, 40 degrees Celsius days with, you know, 80 to 100% relative humidity. Um, you know, sure. dehydration obviously becomes a factor at that point, especially when you're going out for long runs that could, you know, last upwards of three hours. Uh, so it's always been an interest of mine. It, interestingly, you know, I'm not of this camp, I would say, and I'm, I don't really subscribe to any kind of like camp as far as uh, beliefs and research go. Um, but I actually became really interested in Tim Noakes's work on hydration as a undergraduate student and kind of okay. wanted to take some of the ideas he had and uh, uh, as far as related to hyponatremia and look at them and research. Um, Didn't end up pursuing that because when I got into research, um, you know, other things kind of took precedence, other interests uh, academically, um, and just where the focus of the lab I worked in was going, uh, went in different places, may revisit some of those ideas in the next few years, you know, funding uh, obviously will determine, you know, what I end up doing. But it all goes back to that really, and um, its effect on, uh, you know, human performance in general. Uh, now, the issue is, is, you know, again, like I mentioned funding. So, you know, a lot of times I've just pivoted to like the next most interesting thing related to um, heat hydration um, that is fundable, right? So like some of the stuff we've done is been, or I've done is related to creating a questionnaire related to hydration, um, knowledge barriers and beliefs. So that way we can kind of understand the behavioral aspect hydration, which I think actually um, is something that's been uh, not really looked at as much as it should be, Um, because it's mostly physiologists. So we think neck down and I kind of want to incorporate stuff above the neck uh, a little bit. Um, But overall, I guess I I would say my overall interest is just in, you know, uh, how the human body uh, responds to extreme environments. And my particular interests have just, you know, pinpointed on the more heat aspect more than anything. But uh, even recently, I would say I have an increasing interest in um, altitude because I think there's some unanswered questions there that are uh, really intriguing. Um, more to come on okay. that in the next few years. Um, so how do you think that that's kind of like, do you think there's a reason behind why you're so curious with multiple different topics? Or is it is it just because different opportunities have been afforded to you and you just 
you're kind of just following your curiosity. Like, where do you, where do you think that comes from? I think it's a little bit of both. Like, I just am a generally curious person. My undergraduate advisor actually called me a runaway train at one point, uh, <laughs> just because, like, I, you know, will attach to an idea, like, think about it 19,000 different ways. And the next day, I'm interested in something else entirely. Um, you know, as a career wise, I think you do kind of have to, like, nail down an area eventually. Um, I think I've been reluctant to kind of, like, just pursue one thing. Um, because, you know, when you start out, you're ignorant, you, you could go pursue down a line and then you realize, oh, no, all these questions have been answered already. So I've kind of wanted to develop, I think my overall goal during all of my PhD and master's studies was, you know, develop an overall like toolbox and skill set, um, you know, be involved in as many projects as, as possible without, you know, obviously sacrificing the integrity of ongoing projects, um, develop that, uh, that tool set. And then, you know, with the knowledge I've attained during a PhD, then kind of move down a, a certain path um mm. and i would say in general like i'm just more interested in like the um the process of science um i think more so than uh the average scientist so i think that's where like the methodology and statistics interest comes from um because i want to know why we know something if that makes any sense yeah, no, absolutely does and it's, it's interesting because it's almost the opposite uh, of the advice that we're giving um as graduate students around you, know, you have to focus it on this one area you have to have your niche you have to carve out this area that you're known for um but actually you're somebody that's that's kind of bucked that that trend um uh, and i don't know how like lots of the people that i work with are reasonably similar to you in the sort of in terms of the path you've taken i, I don't know whether that advice is maybe a little dated these days, actually. Um, I think it's... That, that maybe we can't do that anymore. I, I don't know it's necessarily dated. I think you definitely need to carve out an area um, that's like your niche, if you will. Um, mm. I think mine has kind of become more as a methodologist than anything. Um, so I think you still need to carve out that niche. I think the what you can get in trouble with when you say like, oh, you need to carve out that niche is I think some people like get really stuck on a certain skill set or measurement. Um, and I, so I don't want to mention anything, you know, by name, but like, you know, there are people where it's just like, it's this, the same study almost or same measurement, but like with a new twist on it, yeah. and eventually that's going to get old and that your funding will dry up. So I think it's just getting that general scientific skill set. If you're a PhD student is extremely important. Uh, be very curious yeah, sure. in how cool. you're obtaining your data, because that's going to leave you more flexible for the future. Um, there's an old saying, right? That if you've only got a hammer, you treat everything as a nail. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's, it's really funny. Um, so a really great book for any young scientist listening to this is uh, Letters to a Young Scientist by E.O. Wilson, who's an evolutionary biologist, I think, by training. Um, he talks about that specifically um, and like how there used to be like technicians whose their only job was to run the centrifuge, right? Because there were these giant rooms and like now you can buy, you know, a thousand different types of centrifuges that run with zero technical knowledge needed. Right. So if you become very like if your way of making money and making yourself stand out is simply by like, oh, I can run this specific type of assay um, or something like that. Or I you know, can do this specific ultrasound measure. It's not bad to have those skills. Like, don't get me wrong. It's good. But like you should be learning them more as like the general concept and like rather than like depending upon that technique to be your breadwinner, I guess, is the, um, the approach I take. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's very sensible. And yeah. And when I'm in. In terms of focusing down on a niche, I think, I think, like, you can have a broad niche. Like, I know that sounds almost yeah. counterintuitive, but uh, I remember when I was 
I spent some time coming towards the end of my PhD thinking, um, like, what's what's the one thread that runs through all of this? What What's the one thread that runs through all of my interests? It may not always be obvious, I think, at the beginning, but I think it's often there. It's just a case of identifying what it maybe is. Okay, so uh, so in terms of... Um, so you talked about different papers and, and different projects and things that you've been working on over the last couple of years. Is there one that, is there one thing that stands out uh, as something that you're most proud of? Uh, I, I you sent me these questions beforehand, and that was one that I kind of was bouncing back between two. Um, this one's not peer reviewed yet, so it's it's back under review again now. So it's uh, up on as a preprint on Sci Archive, but it's actually a collaboration between me and a psychologist, um, Daniel Lockins. Um, the yep. superpower R package. Um, so it's a way to, um, we're going to generally expand, I think, the package, or I am, um, to beyond just ANOVAs. Um, but it's yep. really the first of its kind way to do a power analysis for factorial ANOVAs. Um, and I really created it out of my own like sent, like need to do this for my yep. own projects. Yep. A lot of them do rely on a factorial ANOVA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just the, just the kind messages I've gotten from people who are like, thank you so much. Like, this is straightforward, intuitive, and it's exactly what I needed. Um, you know, that's been really encouraging. And you don't always hear that about your, you know, I guess, I guess that still counts as research. Um, research. Yeah, so, absolutely. yeah, I think that's the product I most like, uh, you know, uh, give myself a pat on the back for. Uh, and so you should. Yeah. There's a, a lot of hours and, and unpaid hours, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, that's always the way. Uh, so, so tell us a bit yeah. more about it then. So, uh, is there like is there a way that you could briefly summarize what what the what the package does, like why it's useful? Yeah. Um, so, just as the like, I guess the briefest way to describe it is most. So, let me t- tell you what like most software doesn't do, and that'll kind of show you why this is um, so important, or at least why I think it's important. Um, most packages um, that do um, power analysis, which if for those of you unaware, statistical power is how most people using a frequentist approach to statistics um, justify their sample sizes, um, require you to enter in a standardized effect size, um, partially to squared. Mm-hmm. And most people are just picking from a list of what's considered a quote unquote small, large or moderate effect size um, without any kind of intuition of what that actually translates to for their own research. Um, so we saw that as problematic and we wanted people to essentially put in a design um, you know, how many levels for the factors that they're putting in there for the design. Um, what If it's within subjects, what would be the correlation between levels and then the means and standard deviations um, for the response pattern they're wanting to detect? Um, because then they can actually go when they're writing grants or when they're writing their papers and say, hey, this specific, you know, for this specific design with this anticipated outcome, we'll have, you know, the ANOVA is going to have X statistical power to detect that um, effect. Um, and I think that's just a very straightforward way of doing it. And it really forces researchers, um, you know, myself included, because I'm using it, um, to really state a priori, like what they are wanting to gain from their design. Um, so that's what um, it kind of does. It also provides nice little visualizations and reports. So we have a shiny app um, yeah. that people can use and it actually download. And I've actually, some of the nice messages I've gotten, it said, Hey, I included this, you know, downloadable report in my grant application, and it, you know, it got some pretty rave reviews because I'm not just saying these esoteric statistical terms and saying, "Yep, we have power to detect that" without any, without giving any meaning for what that means. I've actually been able to show, like, no, this is exactly what my design should look like. This is what we're anticipating to see, and we have the power to detect that effect that we 
our priority statement. So why, like, I think there's a lot of discussion within sports science and exercise science literature more broadly around, um, well, perhaps there's not as much discussion as there should be, but there certainly has been an increasing focus in um, identifying effects of interest, effect sizes of interest, um, and uh, and sample size calculations more broadly. Like, Mm. for those out there that perhaps don't, understand this or don't care um and just want to use the rules of thumb that the rules of thumb that have been passed down yeah to 12 for years and years and years like yeah exactly (laughs) that we hear all the time and you see students making that so i certainly hear students making that argument all of the time like what would you say to them uh in terms of why they shouldn't take that approach and why they should use a tool like the one that you've developed um, oh, that's really good. I, I, we could do a whole podcast episode just on that. Um, I would say, um, I, I, you know, at the most basic level, like if we're using statistics to make decisions about our research and make inferences, you know, at the end of the day about our research, then we have to go full tilt. We have to invest the time in understanding what we're actually doing. Um, I have no problem mm. with research that's qualitative. I have no problem with research that's simply descriptive, um, about, um, a phenomenon. And I think there actually needs to be quite a bit more of that in the sports science literature, like, you know, it, you know, three like in-depth, like an N of three in-depth study on three really elite athletes, you know, is going to tell us a lot mm. about what we want to know about elite sports. Um, and that's valuable and that should get published. You don't need statistics to do that. Right. Um, but if we want to do quantitative studies where we're talking about the probability of an event happening, what we're wanting to talk about, you know, does this treatment work for this disorder or condition or human performance in general? Um, if we're going to decide, if we're going to, you know, give that layer of um, inference and, you know, talk about probabilities, then I think we have to invest the time in making sure that the data we're collecting is enough to actually make a determination um, about there being an effect or not. And, you know, we have to be analyzing it in a way that's appropriate for that data, uh, because that's what's necessary to make those probabilistic statements. Um, so. You know, I think when you decide to make that jump, you have to invest the time and make the decisions because otherwise the big you know, downside is um, you could say something that's completely wrong and false, and that's going to set the field back because it's going to give people the wrong impression. Um, you may not say something that's false, but you mm-hmm. may give an interpretation. I think this is the biggest thing in sports science. You may give an interpretation that's way more definitive than what the data would indicate, and then, it be- then something becomes a fact, and then a zombie fact, and it takes forever to undo that. If you're the first person to say something, then you're the authority. That study um, is the authority, and every follow-up study, no matter how many negatives there are, it's going to be it's going to take orders of magnitude more information to overturn that fact. Um, so, especially when it's backed up by quote-unquote numbers. Um, so that would be my you know cautionary tale is like you need to be extremely careful when you make probabilistic statements like that. Um, and I think you know, yeah, a classic example is what we're seeing you know, right now with coronavirus. Now, mind you, things have to move rapidly um, with everything that's going on. Like, you know, a type two error is you know, uh, much more costly than a type one at this point, if you will. Um, but I think everybody's seen some of that misinformation going around, especially by, you know, uh, quote unquote data scientists, um, which is mostly just tech pros out in Silicon Valley who have decided to build like a forecasting model um, without any knowledge of epidemiology, right? Um, or just generally bad statistical knowledge and the kind of damage and panic that can come from that. 
Um, so that's my cautionary tale. It's like, you know, if you're going to do, if you're going to do the quantitative work, then do the quantitative work and do your homework. I think as a takeaway message that, that last sentence, if you're going to do this, basically do it right. <laughs> um, is, is one that I think everybody should be getting, getting behind more. Um, like I think I, I, every year I worry with my students that there's kind of norms and expectations around what, what we expect from undergraduate students. Um, and you can either teach them how to do something properly, or you can teach them how to, uh, do a bodge job for a dissertation. Um, and yeah, and that, I think that's kind of part of the problem. And, and am I right in thinking that like statistical education is something that you're interested in more broadly as well, or obviously you've, you've created this app to try to help people or this, uh, this shiny app, I should say, but is, is, is that something you're interested the in? general kind of like, like how oh, we yeah. educate. That's like my biggest thing, because I think, I, I don't think, you know, when I talk, when I talk and criticize about methods and I think in general, like you or me both, right. I think a lot of people take that as, oh, you're saying everybody in this field has no morals and is actively doing a bad job and actively trying to deceive. And that's not my point at all. I'm just essentially pointing out flaws to essentially say like, we're doing a great thing here. We're increasing, you know, scientific knowledge, right. But we can do better, right. We can be more efficient with how we you know, improve knowledge, we can, you know, um, you know, gain more from the data um, by improving our methods, both in how the data is collected, analyzed, and uh, disseminated. Um, and, you know, that's why I'm such a big proponent of education and creating these apps and creating, you know, uh, tools for researchers to actually use their own data set, because, you know, I don't get any joy from telling people that they're doing something wrong. Um, it's actually, I, I'm quite slow to do so in fact, because I don't want to upset people. And 90% of the time I assume I'm the one who's wrong first. <laughs> um, so yeah, sure. And it's not, it's not, it's not as a, as a criticism really, is it? It's, it's more of a, like a learning opportunity, like, <laughs> um, that you just want to help people to, to do better research because you're so passionate yeah, about research, right? It's not, it's not a personal exactly attack. Half the time it's me recognizing it about my own research. Right. And you know, like this, exactly. Well, I've made the mistakes in my own research doing power analysis. Like one of my very first studies um, at Arkansas, like I, the power analysis was not correct, <laughs> like in retrospect. And I know that mm. after building this app and I, you know, I built this so I can use it for my own research. I've used it like probably three times in our um, IRB applications in the past, like two months. Um, mm. or, you know, grant applications because, um, you know, I, I need that for my own research. Um, so yeah. And, you know, I, I find if I need it for what I'm doing, you know, in exercise physiology, like there's probably 50 other people at least that would use the exact same tool. Um, and, you know, part of that's also building the educational material. Like I, you know, I have no problem reading, you know, a hundred statistics papers, you know, and getting that knowledge, but, you know, finding, mm -hmm. you know, ways to write up you know, a short introduction on, I'm working on one on effect sizes right now um, and showing people not only like how to apply it for their own research and like the general logic, but also like literally here's the scripts that you can use in R, right? And the general principles behind using um, this programming um, and how you can apply it to your own data. Um, because, you know, that is, that, that's the huge gap um, I see right now between like what formal statisticians are doing and what's actually happening in practice in biomedicine as a whole. Um, is that, you know, there's a big difference between writing out the mathematical proof in the stats journal and what people actually need to use, um, for their own research. And, um, I'm trying to fill that gap. Yeah. Do you think 
because I've heard arguments um, like for and against like different approaches for how we actually solve some of the problems um, around the the way that um, particularly sports scientists and exercise scientists use um, statistics. So can I assume from your statement that you're more of the let's try to train everybody up rather than the camp that says like let's just stop <laughs> let's stop like stop like running. having people do um, statistics on their own yeah, yeah. basically uh, and that we should be employing more um, trained statisticians to be actually running the the analyses for us like where where do you fit in that that kind of um, continuum I guess more towards the yeah I, I let's train everybody rather I, than I, 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 I'm kind of like straddling the fence, right? You know, you know, the more I learn about statistics, the more I'm like, oh my God, I knew nothing about statistics like a day ago. And now I know more. And the, the more I learn, the less I feel I know, I guess. Um, and I think, you know, if, you, if, you've, if you're an exercise scientist without a degree in statistics and you feel like you're confident in your statistics, you probably know just enough to be dangerous. Um, so always, you know, have some humility in that area. Like there's people who, you know, are trained to know this for a living. Um, you know, I think for some of the more advanced stuff, yeah. you know, if you're going beyond like a T test, like, or even like an ANOVA, it depends on your skill set. Like, yeah, you should definitely consult a statistician. But I think the idea that, you know, you can't do any quantitative analysis without a statistics degree is just unsustainable. And we, mm. I think if you just look back at the history yeah. of science, like, you know, like every time a statistician's not been involved, there, you know, there hasn't been some critical mistake. Um, I think there needs to be more collaboration. Um, I think, you know, in departments that are well-funded enough, like they should have a biostatistician, you know, on staff whose job is to teach the research methods courses and advise on, you know, statistically on projects. Um, but at the end of the day, that's just not going to be sustainable. I think the kind of solution is to look over to, you know, what other fields have, which is, you know, um, in chemistry, there's instrumental chemists who are, you know, primarily involved in like, you know, the quantitative techniques for chemistry. Right. If you look over to psychology, like formal psychology, there are mathematical psychologists and all they're doing is modeling and all they're doing is developing techniques for analysis for psychology as a whole. Right. Like pure application of those mathematics to their field. I think we need something similar for, you know, whatever you call it, sports science, exercise science, kinesiology, um, whether that has a formal name. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. But like what I see is the gap for our field compared to what everybody else is doing is you go to our conferences and there's no method section on, you know, the quantitative stuff. And that I think is the big gap and why techniques um, that have been criticized recently have festered really is there's no one there to push back when someone proposes them. There's no discussion going on. Um, and, you know, within that group, you know, there probably are going to be you know people who have a formal training in statistics who pivot over to sports science and the opposite, which is, you know, more like me, which is formal training in kinesiology who have now pivoted more over to the quantitative side. Yeah, I think, I think that's sensible. I think, Certainly, working more closely with uh, statisticians in the short term, uh, it, it, certainly with departments that can afford it, is seems sensible at the moment. Um, whilst we try to upskill and come to different, um, like try to figure out different solutions to this problem, but um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I was at a conference last year, and um, and a, a very senior uh, academic in my field was given a, a keynote, um, and he talked about. <clears throat> conducting a power analysis and one of the so i asked a question like so i can't i can't remember the the specifics and he gave a 
a terrible answer. But the whole power dynamic in that room where nobody really knew whether like what I was saying was accurate, what he was saying was accurate. <laughs> uh, it just, it was a, just a very uncomfortable kind of, um, it was a very uncomfortable uh, scenario. Whereas I don't think, I don't think it should be like that. I think it should be, I think we should just be more like open to, open to criticism really. And rather than trying to prove that we're right, try to yeah. just do better. I think that's a big thing as well. Like, like you mentioned the whole hubris thing and, and ego, like, I think that's probably yeah, the biggest I, I, issue. I, no, and I agree. Like, I, there's a big. You can include this in the podcast if you want or not. But like, there's a big debate right now going on. A, a letter to the editor that I helped write on a new novel statistical technique proposed specifically mm. for sports science on responders and non-responders. And you know, our criticism is essentially like you say it does these things, but you have not shown with math and simulations that it doesn't. Our math and simulations show that it doesn't do what it, you say it does, right? And that's the entirety of our criticism. You know. We, we don't care if it's an improvement on the old crap, if it's still crap, and especially if it doesn't perform at the rate that you say it does. Um, and, you know, the entirety of my criticism is like, look, we could be wrong, right? But we've at least done the, the, our homework and shown yep. with mathematics and simulations, right? Formal mathematical proofs and simulations. Mm-hmm. If we're wrong, show us. That's fine. But this is where, this is the, yep. the conver- where the conversation needs to be, right? Um, or, or at least temper, like temper the expectations around it. Say, look, so we haven't done these things, so, right. but we're, so we're not going to make definitive statements about what it can and can't do. Because at this point, but that's not what we, like you and I both know, that's not what we see in the literature. And that's not what oh, gets published exactly. in the prestigious yeah. journals. And No editor wants to, no editor wants to accept a paper where the authors are like, well, it could do this or like, you know, maybe shucks, you know, um, mind you, I'm always the person as the reviewer on these papers, writing the editor being like, just temper the, just don't, 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 don't be so certain, right? Like, this is fine. This is good science, but you know, more qualifying, you know, statements and those results. Um, but there's no reward for being um, in science for, you know, tempering expectations. Like you, like you get rewarded for making outrageous claims. Um, and, you know, that's a whole nother conversation about how to get around that issue. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I agree. And, and why why that issue like occurs? I, I, I don't know if it's. I'm, I'm sure that the further you progress in this in this uh, world, the more you come across professors that have identified the the, the hill that they're prepared to die on, um, whether it's completely like illogical or not. But it just mm-hmm. seems to be. It gets to a point where actually you you. It almost doesn't matter. Like the evidence doesn't matter. You just, you're well known enough that you can just say any kind of outrageous thing and be known for that outrageous thing. And that's just enough in itself. Yeah. Um, but yes, that is a, that is a whole different yeah. podcast. So maybe, maybe we'll get you back on in the future and, and talk about uh, some of the problems in science and, uh, and, and why that is. Um, let's take a quick break. Uh, and then we can, uh, we can come back and play a little game and lighten the mood and um, finish off with the last couple of questions. That sounds sounds right.
Thanks for sticking with Aaron and myself through the break. Uh, I just want to take a brief moment to mention a couple of ways you can get in touch and to give some feedback. Uh, so first and foremost, you can contact me on Twitter, uh, which is at JPMillsPhD. You can also email me, uh, which will be kicking off at JohnPMills.co.uk. The show notes for today's episode will also be on my website, which is www.JohnPMills.co.uk forward slash kicking off pilot. If you've got questions and comments, uh, please do let me know. This is obviously a pilot episode, so I'm really keen to hear what you think works, what sort of content you'd like, what guests, and I'll do my best to facilitate as many as I can. Okay, thanks. Let's get back to the show. So welcome back. Um, we're just going to talk about a couple more things and then we'll wrap up. Um, but before we jump into the the, uh, the last couple of questions, I just want to uh, I, I ask all of my guests to play a little game with me. Um, I've asked you to identify or to, to tell me three fun facts about yourself, uh, of which only one of them is true. And I'm going to try and guess which one is true. Um, I'm led to believe uh, your wife has uh, helped you with this. So I'm hoping that that might be a clue to help me uh, help me identify, but we'll okay. see. So Aaron, what, what are your three fun facts about yourself? Three fun facts. All right. Fact number one, I've never lived in one place for more than four years. Fact number two, all of my degrees are in exercise science. And fact number three, I was encouraged to actually go into actuarial science, which is essentially insurance, um, because of my love of statistics in high school. Oh, it's, it's got to be number three. It's got to be the, the true one, surely. Oh, no. Yeah, no, because you're doing, oh, oh, I don't know. I'm going to go, I'm going to go with the third one as being the truth. That is incorrect. Uh, oh, so all of your degrees are in sports, sport and exercise science? All my degrees are different names. Like it's like exercise science, then kinesiology, and then health, sport, and exercise science. But all of them are in like uh, a, a general kines umbrella. Um, the longest I've ever lived in one place was actually six years when I was in Kansas. And I was actually, I wanted to go into actuarial science in high school. And I had my calculus teacher, a pre-calc, I can't remember which one, take me aside and tell me I wasn't that good at math and should not pursue this. No. <laughs> so you're leading the, you're leading the, the fight for sports science in terms of statistics. And, uh, and your high school teacher was like, mm, this math stuff, I'm not sure if it's completely for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I, I always loved math. It just like, I've, it's never been like something I've like, you know, can just do off the cuff. But yeah, it was super funny that I think about that now where I'm just like, son of a gun, if she could see me now. Yeah. <laughs> I take it. Uh, yeah. She, she's not getting, she's not on the Christmas card list no, anymore. No. Yeah. If it make if it helps. Uh, I don't know if you did it in the States, but um, I talk about it in one of, the, one of my early papers that um, when I was in um, secondary school, we used to have this like software package that was supposed to predict your oh, career. Yeah. Um, we did had you have so that? many of those and they are always all over the place for me. They were never, nothing ever I wanted to do. So my one, uh, we, we only did it once. Uh, we all marched around to this, uh, this glorified cupboard effectively. And there was this disheveled man in this very like, I don't know, probably early nineties computer, although this was the late nineties, um, showing my age here. Um, and you're led into this cupboard with this, this, this guy that, really looked like, uh, I don't know, completely dead eyes, just not enjoying life. Not that you would really living in a broom cupboard with 15 year old kids being marched around to talk to you about their careers. Um, and, uh, I was so desperate to be a football coach that I thought I, I'm, I'm smart enough. I can fix this test. 
So the questions were things like, um, do you like working inside or outside? So I was like, definitely outside. Football coaches work outside, easy. Uh, do you like working in a team or with others? And I was like, mm, well, I can kind of see both, but I'll put, I'll put a team because obviously you're working with teams. And a couple of minutes later, the machine does its thing. And um, the, the outcome for me was I should be a rope digger. And uh, some of the listeners here will, will probably agree that the machine was, uh, it might have been right and maybe that would have been a better career choice. But, um, but yeah, that was me. That was, that was my, uh, that, was, that was what was proposed to me, to dig roads. So to dig roads. Two fingers up to the machine. The software obviously didn't work very well. Yeah, so uh, I, think, I think one of mine told me to be a jet fighter pilot. And anyone who knows me is I have like a, a, a pretty big fear of heights. And I was like, no, that's like, that's never going to happen. How do you get a jet fighter pilot? That wasn't even like, I'm from a very deprived area. No one's a jet fighter pilot where I'm from. It's just, I didn't even think there was an option on the machine. I'm pretty sure everything was working at Tesco's or digging roads. No, no, it was, it was like a thousand <laughs> different options like for those like career ones in high school. And I think they just had me take so many of them because I always was like, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. I, I honestly didn't even have a major put in yep. uh, for college until like two months, I think, before school started. Uh, yeah, I just wow. like, was like, uh, I guess I'm going to college. Uh, I don't want to do something with science. Uh, let's go with biology. And that was, you know, that was a pretty good choice. I'm still kind of semi-associated to that. Sunken costs fallacy. Somewhere yeah, I just I kept going until like, <laughs> that's where I was just at. Um, no, I, think I, would, I think I'd still go back and do the same thing though. So, Well, I, I, I would definitely go back and not dig roads. So we're... Uh... We're in agreement there. All right. So last, last little question then. So you kind of talked about, um, you talked, you've talked about lots of different things in terms of what's motivated you to enter into, um, exercise science more broadly. Um, obviously the fact that you are uh, a decent level runner, um, and you were looking at, it sounds like managing your own training programs and, um, just appreciating the different environment that was, that was around you there. Um, so in terms of the actual field of uh, kinesiology or sport and exercise science or, or movement sciences, depending on where you're from, is there one thing that you would love to change and what would that be? Oh, um, hmm. for sport and exercise science in general, I would, I would, I think it was back to kind of a comment I made earlier. I would love to see in like the next 10 years, a like subfield develop, which is, you know, you know, quantitative, um, kinesiology, if you will, which is just a group of a bunch of math nerds and stats nerds and just people who are interested in measurement in general, um, getting together and talking about the application of those concepts within the field. Um, I would love to see that specialty develop, you know, that way, you know, we can publish specific papers on that application with people who are also working within kinesiology and know the needs of, you know, both our um, stakeholders, which would be, you know, coaches, um, physical therapists, sports medicine docs, um, you know, as well as having that domain expertise within um, mathematics and statistics. I, I think it's really necessary at this point um, because, you know, we're getting into this. A lot of the easy discoveries are gone. So like, you know, the stats free, I guess mm -hmm. we call it discoveries um, are already, you know, I think mostly been discovered. And now we need to do larger, mm. more quantitatively heavy studies to kind of parse out um, the new information. Um, and if I think if we delay kind of forming that field, it's only going to delay um, our discoveries and kind of maybe the cleaning up of the scientific record that needs to occur. And that happens in every field. Like, you know, psychology has been going through rounds of this for decades now. 
biology has gone through similar things, especially with genetics. Um, so I just think now mm. is the time to kind of form that kind of group of, uh, you know, dual domain experts that can discuss these issues. That sounds, sounds really good. I think it'd be great. In fact, um, I guess, yeah, I wonder how we, how we do that. Uh, but that's probably a bigger question than, than yeah, we put time no for idea. today. It's, 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 it's more of a dream than a, I, or I guess it's more of a dream than an idea right now, but, um, I think it's something that's definitely necessary. And my last question then is, um, it, it, I know we're moving around a little bit here is, so based on all of your research to date, is there one kind of like takeaway message that you could, um, that could summarize? I know you've got different interests and different, um, you've studied different topics. So maybe you just pick the one that, you, that you're most interested in, most passionate about. And is there one thing that you could like distill down into, into, a, into a sentence or a short, short statement? <laughs> I think I think if you look at like um, even across like my physiology findings and my like statistics stuff is that uh, the kind of common thread is embrace uncertainty and a lot of the things that we believe are you know probably not as robust as we think or they don't generalize to all scenarios as we think they do um, and I think we need to mm. you know generally in science not just even exercise science you know, kind of embrace the we don't knows more than the, you know, authoritative um, voice. Like even in the studies where I've kind of gone back and done like semi-replications of previous work, they don't necessarily bear out to the exact same results. Um, so I think just, I think the general common thread is just, you know, be more uncertain, be willing to be more uncertain and, you know, update your beliefs as necessary. You almost sound Bayesian there. I almost do. I know. Like I think people like were will be, that know me will be shocked to have said something like that. Uh, <laughs> it's on. It's on. It's recorded. It's here for uh, posterity. I'm slowly being corrupted. Well, thanks very much for um, taking the time to come on the show today, and um, good luck with the um, all of the stuff that's going on around COVID. Stay safe, and um, hopefully, I'll catch up with you again soon. All right, man.